0: Hosea chapter 12, Israel's ingratitude and pride, ingratitude and pride. Ephraim feeds on wind and pursues the east wind continually. He multiplies lies and violence. Moreover, he makes a covenant with Assyria and oil is carried to Egypt. The Lord also has a dispute with Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. In the womb he took his brother by the heel, and in his maturity he contended with God. Yes, he wrestled with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He found him at Bethel, and there he spoke with us. Even the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his name. Therefore, return to your God, observe kindness and justice, and wait for your God continually. A Merchant in whose hands are false balances he loves to oppress. And Ephraim said, Surely I have become rich, I have found wealth for myself. In all my labors they will find in me no iniquity, which would be sin. But I have been the Lord your God since the land of Egypt. I will make you live in tents again, as in the days of the appointed festival. I have also spoken to the prophets, and I gave numerous visions. And through the prophets, I gave parables. Is there iniquity in Gilead? Surely they are worthless. In Gilgal, they sacrifice bulls. Yes, their altars are like the stone heaps beside the furrows of the field. Now Jacob fled to the land of Aram, and Israel worked for a wife. And for a wife, he kept sheep. But by a prophet, the Lord brought Israel from Egypt. And by a prophet, he was kept. Ephraim has provoked to bitter anger. So his Lord will leave his blood guilt on him and bring back his reproach to him. Amen. We find here, for a clarification, we find here God going back and forth between the nation of Israel and the patriarch Israel. The nation of Israel and the patriarch Israel, who is also called Jacob or Even Israel is called Jacob here. This is one of those passages where we have to pay close attention and see how God compares the patriarch or contrasts the patriarch to the people, the nation of Israel. In verses 1 and 2, he is speaking of the nation. In verses 1 and 2, the nation. Ephraim feeds on wind and pursues the east wind continually it's vain and foolish to open your mouth and swallow the wind. But this is the way they practice sin. They don't realize how vain and foolish it is to practice their sin. And they even have the east wind coming to them continually. The east wind in the context of Israel and Canaan would be the wind from the desert. The wind from the desert. And that's a hot and worthless wind. And it's a a wind that torments the people in the summertime. Then he explains what he means. He used an analogy or a parable in the first part. And then he says, he multiplies lies and violence. The nation is full of lies and violence, which are indicative of the devil. John eight forty four. you are of your father, the devil. He was a liar or a murderer and a liar from the beginning. He lies and he murders, and so do the people who belong to the devil. They lie and murder or commit violence. It's typical of unbelievers. Further, false hope. Israel puts false hope. Israel, and remember, Ephraim is one of the largest tribes in the north. That's why sometimes Ephraim is a synonym for the nation of Israel. Though Ephraim was one of the sons of Joseph. He was once a patriarch, became a tribe, and then... Um, a synonym for the nation of Israel. Verse one, what else is he doing? He makes a covenant with Assyria and oil is carried to Egypt. He actually wants Egypt's help, so he sends these products, trade of oil, so that Egypt will grant military might and favor to Israel. Israel also, at this period of time, in the period of the imminent destruction of the north, they were making an alliance, but a fake alliance or covenant here, a treaty with Assyria, because they didn't want Assyria to continue marching westward and southward and conquer Israel. So they make a treaty or covenant with Assyria, thinking that Assyria will not invade. Assyria will be happy and content. Assyria will stay away. We know that that did not happen. In 722, Assyria came and invaded Israel, destroyed it and exiled it, and they have never been a kingdom since then. The northern part has never been a kingdom since then. And so what they're trying to do is play one nation against another, and in the end, they're gonna lose because their gifts of oil a valued product that the Egyptians would want to import since the land of Israel, for example, is famous for olive oil. Egypt doesn't grow olive oil or olives for olive oil. Israel does. So Egypt trades with Israel for, for such a product. And they think everything is going to be just fine. Their alliance, their trade agreements are going to keep them all safe. But it's not. Verse 2, the Lord also has a dispute with Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. Now God turns his attention to the southern kingdom, Judah, also called Jacob here. Judah or Jacob. The southern kingdom of Judah. God's not only contending against the north, he's contending against the south. Both kingdoms have corrupted their ways before God. So God has a dispute. He has contention. He's got a lawsuit against them. He's indicting them. He has been indicting them the whole of the book. And now he says he's going to punish them. They're going to get what they deserve. Galatians 6, 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. Galatians 6, 7. Obadiah 15, the day of the Lord is uh, drawing near on all the nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your dealings will return on your own head. Not only to all the nations, but even the nation Israel. Though they are favored by God by covenant, yet they didn't keep the covenant. So now God's going to punish them for breach of the covenant. God is a God of justice. Should Israel and the Northern northern Kingdom and should Judah, the Southern Kingdom, have known all this? Did they have an example? Could they have followed the path of righteousness? Yes, because they have the example in verses three to five of Jacob, the patriarch. Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Jacob of the book of Genesis. They have him as a model. Verse three, in the womb, he took his brother by the heel. And in his maturity, he contended with God. Two incidents are here in verse three. When he was in the womb, that's Genesis 25. When he wrestled with God or contended with God, it's also called wrestling in verse four, which he did. That is in chapter 32, Genesis 25 In the womb, Genesis 32, when he was an adult, he wrestled with God. Why did he contend or grab his brother by the heel, his brother Esau, and why did he wrestle with the angel, with God? He wanted the blessing of God. Yes, in the womb and in his maturity, infancy and maturity, he wanted the blessing of God. It actually says in verse 4, he wept and sought his favor. He wanted the grace of God. He wanted God's blessing. Which is true if we read Genesis 32, indisputably true in Genesis 32. He would not let the angel go unless the angel blessed him. And here we're told he wept when he was seeking the blessing of the angel. But... Unbelievers, the wicked, they don't pursue God in the right way to receive true blessings from him. They don't do that. They seek after their own blessings in their own way by their own wisdom and by their own strength. Jacob didn't do it that way. He's commended here. Also, notice we have here a confirmation of Christophany. Christophany, appearance of Christ in the Old Testament, also called pre-incarnate appearances of Christ in the Old Testament. We have confirmation. Verse 3, it says Jacob contended with God. Verse 4, it calls the same God, the angel. The New American Standard Bible quite often does um, capitalize pronouns in reference to deity, But they don't usually capitalize the A of angel when it's in reference to deity, that is Christ. But they should, I think, have done so. And in verse 4, if you look at this word angel in its basic meaning, an angel is a messenger. Then Christ fits that. Christ is the uncreated angel or the uncreated messenger. He is divine, not like the created angels who worship him, like it says in Hebrews 1, 5 to 14, that the angels, the created angels, worship the uncreated angel or messenger of God, Christ. Hebrews 1, 5 to 14. And then it says in verse 4, though the NASB did not capitalize A of angel in verse 4, they did capitalize the H of his favor, and then he found him, the H of him. They did do that. And that shows that even the editors of the NASB believe that Jacob wrestled with God, with deity, in a literal match, a literal wrestling match. Not a vision and not a dream, but a literal physical Brawl or wrestling match with God. Verse five confirms who is it? Verse three says God. Verse four says angel, meaning uncreated angel. Verse four, he's also seeking his favor, which means he's petitioning or praying, right? And that would only be to God. Then in verse five, it removes all doubt. Who is it? The Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his name or his memorial name. When we see this word Lord with four capital letters, L-O-R-D, twice here, and then it says the Lord is his name, your marginal note might say memorial or memorial name which is just like Exodus 3:14 and 15 where God says I am who I am thus you shall say to the sons of Israel I am has sent me to you this is my name forever and my memorial name to all generations Exodus 3:14 and 15 that was when God appeared and it also says in Exodus 3 verse 2 that it was the angel of the Lord but the Lord or God the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in the burning bush. And that's what he called himself, the Lord. The Lord is his memorial name. Before we leave this, let's confirm that we're not twisting and distorting what Hosea is saying. Let's see evidence that Jacob knew who his wrestling partner was in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 32. Genesis 32. We'll pick it up at verse 27. 27. The, The wrestling has occurred, and then verse 7. So he said to him... Who's the he and who is the him? The he is the man or the angel or God who wrestled with Jacob. So he, Christ, said to him, Jacob, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, Christ said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him and said, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And he blessed him there. The blessing he wanted in verse 26, he received in verse 29. He blessed him there. God or Christ blessed Jacob. So Jacob named the place Peniel, for he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. Did Jacob know he was looking at God or wrestling with God, striving with God? Yes, because he gave this name to the place, face of God. Peniel means face of God. And he explains why he gave the name. I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. He's grateful that he should have died because he was in the presence of God, but he didn't die. One more place in Genesis, Genesis chapter 48. This is also Jacob. Jacob is speaking in Genesis 48. Jacob also called Israel by this point in Genesis. Genesis forty-eight, fifteen and 16. When Jacob or Israel blesses Joseph, he says the following, verse 15, 48, 15. And he, Jacob, blessed Joseph and said, May the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, may the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, may the angel who has redeemed me from all evil bless the lads, and may my name live on in them and the names of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and may they grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Jacob, in his blessing, he's not calling on uh, two gods. In verse 15, we're thinking of one God, right? He does not believe in two or three or 23 or 333 million gods. Jacob doesn't believe in any of those, right? He believes in one God. So in verse 15, the God before whom, the God who has been, that is the one and only God, right? Right? that one and only God he calls upon to bless the lads, his grandsons, Joseph's sons. But he calls that one God, in verse 16, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil. Bless the lads. Is that clear? Jacob knew who was his shepherd all his life, who redeemed him, and who he should call upon who he wrestled with and so forth. Jacob knew it. It's not as though Hosea is misinterpreting the book of Genesis. Jacob knew exactly and Hosea knew exactly who it was. Now back to Hosea. Hosea 12. Hosea 12. It further says in verse 4, And there he spoke with us. At Bethel and at Peniel, Bethel would be Genesis 28 and 35. At those places, it says that God spoke. We know he spoke to Jacob, but it says us. Why does it say us? Because whatever happened to Jacob was not intended only for Jacob. It was intended for us too. So when God spoke to Jacob, he was speaking to the rest of Jacob's descendants. Or in our case, we who are the spiritual descendants of Jacob, he's speaking to us. Let's confirm this. When it says us, he means you and me or anybody else who has knowledge of Jacob and the scriptures Romans 4 Romans 4:23 4, to 25 Romans 4:23 And now uh, excuse me now not for his sake only was it written that it was reckoned to him but for our sake also to whom it will be reckoned as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead He who was delivered up because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. When the scripture records in Genesis 15, 6, it was reckoned to him. Was it for Abraham's benefit only that it was recorded? No. He says, but for our sake also to whom it will be reckoned. What happened to Abraham is set in scripture, recorded in scripture, as an example and model for us as he believed the gospel we should believe the gospel the same with jacob as jacob believed the gospel we should believe the gospel and obey it romans 15:4 says the same romans 15:4 for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. Whatever was written in earlier times refers to the Old Testament. It's for us to benefit, for our instruction. Hosea 12, verse 6. 12, 6. Therefore, return to your God, observe kindness and justice, and wait for your God continually. Verse 6 is a call to repentance. Repentance, which includes obedience. It's a call to repentance. We just explained, verses 3 to 5, that Jacob is a good example to follow. Well, why don't you do that, Israel? He's your ancestor. He's your forefather. He's a, a godly patriarch, redeemed by God, right? He believed the gospel. Why don't you believe the gospel, Israel? Therefore, based on this contrast of verses one to five, he says, repent. Return means repent. Remember, usually in the Old Testament, even though the word repent is sometimes used, the word return is more often than repent. And it means the same thing. It's just describing it in another way. To turn to your God or return to your God is the same as repent. He's saying, repent. We do have a clear New Testament example of this, 1 Peter 2.25, which says, but you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. You have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Commending the recipients of that letter that they have repented and believed in Christ. But not only repent, turn away from sin, but on the positive side. On the positive side, observe kindness and justice and wait for wait for is another phrase for hope in. Hope in, put your confidence in, expectation in your God continually. Kindness and justice and hope in God. That should characterize believers, and that should not be a surprise to anybody. Because the people had asked in the book of Micah, Micah, you're preaching all this, but what are we supposed to do? Micah answers. Micah 6.8, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Micah 6.8, Do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with your God. No longer practicing evil, but constructively, positively practicing kindness or loving kindness or mercy and justice. Justice, righteousness. Put your hope in God, not in yourself, not in your idols, not in your sins. Don't put any hope or confidence in any of those. For how long? Continually. Not temporarily. Not with fake faith, which is temporary faith. Temporary faith is fake faith. It has to be persistent faith. It has to be consistent faith. It has to be persevering faith, enduring faith. Or here he says, continually. From conversion to coffin, or from conversion to the consummation of the ages when Christ returns, we must maintain the faith. Endure until the end. He who endures till the end shall be saved. Matthew 24:13. However, they don't do that. What do they do? Verse 7. A merchant in whose hands are false balances. He loves to oppress. They are skilled at being traders or businessmen, merchants on the seas traveling from Israel to Egypt or Israel to Damascus, going north and wherever they go, they are skilled at their merchandising. But what do they do? They oppress with false balances. If you think about olden times, when they would have a balance at the market, at the open market, have two trays and the weight is on one and the product, the fruit or the vegetables in the other. And the customer says, I'd like a pound of those vegetables. I'd like a pound or two pounds of that fruit. And then the merchant on the other side is supposed to put an honest pound or two pound weight on the other side, right? But they didn't do that. They oppress the people with false scales. Hosea, not Hosea, Amos, Amos 8, 4-6, Amos 8, 4-6, there too, they're thinking of corruption in the marketplace, Amos 8, verse 4, hear this, you who trample the needy to do away with the humble of the land, saying, When will the new moon be over so that we may buy grain and the Sabbath that we may open the wheat market to make the bushel smaller and the shekel bigger and to cheat with dishonest scales so as to buy the helpless for money and the needy for a pair of sandals and that we may sell the refuse of the wheat? The refuse of the wheat, that would be taking the chaff of the wheat putting it or packing it at the bottom of the bag, putting the wheat at the top and telling the customer, okay, you have a 10-pound bag of wheat right here that I'm selling, you asked for 10, here's 10. When actually it's probably nine pounds or eight and a half pounds or eight pounds, and the customer won't discover it until many days in advance, many days ahead, and then it's too late to do anything. That's the kind of thing they were doing, they loved to oppress and to cheat people. And then verse eight, after they have cheated, verse eight, Ephraim said, surely I have become rich, I have found wealth for myself. Like, I earned it, I deserved it, I worked hard. My hard labor brought me this wealth. In all my labors they will find in me no iniquity which would be sin. What's that? They're saying, they're they're trying to soothe their guilty conscience and say, I worked hard today, I got what I deserved, I deserve my wages, and I did it honestly, so nobody should accuse me. God even cannot accuse me of doing wrong. I did it the right way. Or whatever I did was not sin. Proverbs thirty twenty. Proverbs thirty twenty. This is the way of an adulterous woman. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have done no wrong. I have done no wrong. Whatever she acquired from her adultery, she uses this to eat, wipe her mouth, be satisfied in her tummy. And and then she soothes her conscience by saying, I have done no wrong. Everybody has to eat, right? People say that. We all have to eat. But obtain it the right way is the point. Obtain it the right way. And don't try to excuse sin and say it's not a sin. Verse 9, should they have known better? Yes, verses 9 and 10 will say so. They should have known better. But I have been the Lord your God since the land of Egypt. I will make you live in tents again, as in the days of the appointed festival. They should have known because God delivered them miraculously from Egypt. He provided for them abundantly in the wilderness, gave them a fruitful and abundant land of Canaan, the land of promise, where they harvested that which they did not labor for, right? He provided and instructed them. He gave them his word, the law, they had a lack of nothing. And God's saying here, I even have this ability to make you live in tents again as in the days of the appointed festival, meaning the, the festival of the Feast of Booths. Leviticus 23 explains the various festivals. The Feast of Booths was one of them where they were to annually be reminded Of the fact that they dwelt in the wilderness, in the desert under Moses, yet God provided for them miraculously. They should constantly put their faith in God and not idols, not their wisdom, not their sin, only in God. And He will provide. Leviticus Leviticus 23. Leviticus 23, where the festivals are enumerated and explained. Leviticus 23. Verse 10, I have also spoken to the prophets and I gave numerous visions and through the prophets I gave parables. Did they lack prophets? Did they lack the instruction of the Lord? No. In terms of writing prophets, written prophets, they had Moses, they have Hosea and everyone between the two of them they had plenty of knowledge they had plenty of writings remember what we read in hosea 8:12 though i wrote for him 10000 pieces of my law they are regarded as a strange thing god gave them plenty of true knowledge for them to obey he didn't leave them in the dark he didn't leave them without wisdom and guidance He cared for them by the prophets. Notice there, God mentions prophets and their visions and oracles and writings as evidence of His love. Even though the prophets usually preached against sin. They preached against sin, but that's evidence of love. Preaching against sin is evidence of love. James 5 19 and 20. James 5:19 and 20. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. If we turn a sinner away from the error of his way, what are we doing for the sake of that sinner? Saving his soul from death and covering a multitude of sins. Is that not love? Is that not mercy, grace, kindness, goodness, a blessing? It is, of course. That's what God means. No lack of prophets and parables. Why parables? Hosea 12.10, parables are meant to illustrate, correct? They are meant to illustrate. We have seen parables or illustrations here in this chapter, correct? We saw it at the start of the book of Hosea. His life was a parable. Hosea's life in marrying a harlot, that was an example of God marrying Israel, a harlotrous nation. So parables are all over the place, Old Testament, New Testament, We usually associate them with Christ. And yes, he did um, propound many parables, yet he was not the first one. He was the one who inspired the prophets to preach parables too. No lack of illustration. So people can't say, Hosea, you're too confusing. Moses, you're too confusing. Isaiah, you're too confusing. I don't know what you're talking about. Ezekiel, I don't know what you're talking about. They can't claim that. So, verse 11. Is there iniquity in Gilead? Surely they are worthless. In Gilgal, they sacrifice bulls. Yes, their altars are like the stone heaps beside the furrows of the field. Yes, there is iniquity in Gilead. Gilead is the region that's on the eastern side of the Jordan River where Reuben, Gad, and half Manasseh, on that side of the river, that's where they dwelt. But over there, they worshipped idols. But what's the irony of that? In Joshua 22, they built an altar in the land of Canaan that bordered their territory, their land on the eastern side, in order to remind the descendants that they belong to each other and they all belong to the Lord. However, now there's iniquity over there. They had a memorial altar to remind them, but that didn't do its work because of their perverse heart. It didn't do its work. So he calls them worthless. Surely they are worthless. That's a word that we're not supposed to use of people. As our culture says, you can't use that word worthless. Nobody's worthless. Yes, when people are in unrepentant sin, they are worthless. Titus 1.16, a New Testament verse calls people worthless. Titus 1.16, they profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Titus 1.16, worthless for any good deed. When we are bent on sin, we are worthless. Here also, he says, they sacrificed bulls at Gilgal. Gilgal should have been, this was the first place where Joshua and the people camped and before they invaded Canaan. And it was a good place to remember. That's when God rolled away the reproach of Egypt, it says, in Joshua chapter 5. He rolls away, and Gilgal means rolling or to roll away. Roll away the reproach of Egypt. But they made that good place in terms of the history and memory of the people into a place of idolatrous altars. And they have so many altars, they are like stone heaps beside the furrows of the field. Why would there be stone heaps by the furrows of the field? Because the farmer has to clear the ground and make sure that the seed he plants fall on good soil and not on the rocks. And when he does so, he accumulates heaps and heaps of stones on the side. So there are many heaps and many stones. In the same way, they have many altars... Heaps of altars all across the, the countryside, all across the landscape. Lots of pagan altars, idolatrous altars, which are like worthless stones. Heaps of worthless stones that get in the way of the crop. Verse 12. One more comparison. Verses 12 to 14 Will be similar to the way the chapter started, comparing the patriarch with the people. Verse 12, the patriarch. Now Jacob fled to the land of Aram, and Israel worked for a wife, and for a wife he kept sheep. We know this to be true in Genesis chapter 28, from chapters 28 to 35. Jacob, he flees Canaan from Canaan to go to Padan Aram, the land of the north, where some of his relatives still lived, and he went there to find a wife, but he was so poor he worked for a wife, and he kept sheep. He had a very lowly and humble condition. But we remember that God blessed him. Though he started lowly and humble, impoverished, he ended up wealthy because he was faithful to God. And that's a picture of the spiritual life. If we start humble in our spiritual life, God will enrich us spiritually. But we have to start with humility. How do we start with humility? Repentance. Repentance and humility go hand in hand. They were so proud. They were so ungrateful. They didn't think of the patriarch in the right way. They didn't even think of their own circumstances as a nation in the right way. Verse 13, but by a prophet, the Lord brought Israel from Egypt and by a prophet, he was kept. Not only Jacob, but Moses and perhaps even Joshua, but at least Moses in verse 13, that was the prophet by whom God delivered Israel from Egypt. Did God provide? Yes. Jacob started with just a few few people and few possessions, then he became a mighty nation, so numerous that the nation had to be wrested out of the hands, the clutches of the wicked Pharaoh of Egypt, by the prophet Moses and by many dreadful miracles in Egypt, but also provisional miracles in the wilderness, many miracles in the wilderness that provided for the people. And he kept them safe, he protected them, Even when the Amalekites attacked them, even when Sihon and Og attacked them, there was no victory for them. But Israel conquered them. Verse 14, Ephraim, the nation, Ephraim has provoked to bitter anger, so his Lord will leave his blood guilt on him and bring back his reproach to him. Did they learn? No. No amount of parables, no amount of oracles, prophetic oracles, no amount of scripture, no amount of blessing, no amount of miracles, no amount of examples, no amount of patriarchs, no amount of anything. And therefore, God's anger is against them. Bitter anger of God against the people. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth, the truth in unrighteousness, Romans one eighteen. This is the bitter anger of God against them, and whatever blood that they deserve on their head is going to be held accountable to them. They will be held to account for shedding innocent blood, for murdering souls for doing that which is evil in God's sight, therefore God will punish them. God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man and having furnished proof by raising him from the dead, Acts 17:31), That judgment will come. Whether in this life we experience it or not, it will certainly be in the day to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.